Helen's Babies, Part 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Helen's Babies, by John Haberton, Part 4. In stepped Mike, with an air of the greatest secrecy, handed me a letter, and the identical box in which I had sent the flowers to Miss Mayton. What could it mean? I hastily opened the envelope, and at the same time Toddy shrieked, "'Oh, dar's my dolly's cadle! There tis!' Snatched and opened the box, and displayed his doll. My heart sickened, and did not regain its strength during the perusal of the following note. Miss Mayton herewith returns to Mr. Burton the package which just arrived, with his card. She recognizes the contents as a portion of the apparent property of one of Burton's nephews, but is unable to understand why it should have been sent to her. June twentieth, 1875. "'Toddy!' I roared as my younger nephew caressed his loathsome doll, and murmured endearing words to it. "'Where did you get that box?' "'On the hat-whack,' replied the youth, with perfect fearlessness. "'I keeps it in the bookcase drawer, and somebody took it away and put nasty old flowers in it.' "'Where are those flowers?' I demanded. Toddy looked up with considerable surprise, but promptly replied, "'I froed em away. Don't want no old flowers in my dolly's cadle. That's the way she walks, see?' And this horrible little destroyer of human hopes rolled that box back and forth, with the most utter unconcern, as he spoke endearing words to the substitute for my beautiful bouquet. To say that I looked at Toddy reprovingly is to express my feelings in the most inadequate language, but of language in which to express my feelings to Toddy I could find absolutely none. Within two or three short moments I had discovered how very anxious I really was to merit Miss Mayton's regard, and how very different was the regard I wanted from that which I had previously hoped might be accorded me. It seemed too ridiculous to be true that I, who had for years had dozens of charming lady acquaintances, and yet had always maintained my common sense and self-control, I, who had always considered it unmanly for a man to specially interest himself in any lady, until he had an income of five thousand a year, I, who had skilfully, and at many times, argued, that life attachments, or attempts thereat, which were made without a careful preliminary study of the mental characteristics of the partner desired, was the most unpardonable folly. I had transgressed every one of my own rules, and, as if to mock me for any pretended wisdom and care, my weakness was made known to me by a three-year-old marplot and a hideous rag-doll." That merciful and ennobling dispensation by which providence enables us to temper the severity of our own sufferings, by alleviating those of others, came soon to my rescue. Under my stern glance Toddy gradually lost interest in his doll and its cradle, and began to thrust forth and outward his piteous lower lip, and to weep copiously. "'Dee, Lord, make me not so bad!' he cried through his tears. I doubt his having had any very clear idea of what he was saying, or whom he was addressing, but had the publican, of whose prayer Toddy made so fair a paraphrase, worn such a face when he offered his famous petition, it could not have been denied for a moment. Toddy even retired to a corner, and hid his face in self-imposed penance. 
"'Never mind, Toddy,' said I sadly. "'You didn't mean to do it, I know.' "'I want to love you,' sobbed Toddy. "'Well, come here, you poor little fellow,' said I, opening my arms, and wondering whether twas not after contemplation of some such sinner that good Bishop Tegner wrote, "'Depths of love are atonement's depths, for love is atonement.' Toddy came to my arms, shed tears freely upon my shirt-front, and finally, after heaving a very long sigh, remarked, "'Want you to love me?' I complied with his request. Theoretically, I had long believed that the higher wisdom of the Creator was most frequently expressed through the medium of his most innocent creations. Surely here was a confirmation of my theory— for who else has ever practically taught me the duty of the injured one toward his offender? I kissed Toddy and petted him, and at length succeeded in quieting him. His little face, in spite of much dirt and many tear-stains, was upturned with more of beauty in it than it ever held when its owner was full of joy. He looked earnestly, confidingly into my eyes, and I congratulated myself upon the perfection of my forgiving spirit, when Toddy suddenly re-exhibited to me my old unregenerate nature, and the incompleteness of my forgiveness by saying, "'Kish my dolly, too!' I obeyed. My forgiveness was made complete, but so was my humiliation. I abruptly closed our interview. We exchanged God bless you's, according to Budge's instructions of the previous night, and at least one of the participants in this devotional exercise hoped the petitions made by the other were distinctly heard. Then I dropped into an easy-chair in the library, and fell to thinking of Toddy's operation with my bouquet. I might explain the matter to Miss Mayton. I undoubtedly could, for she was too sensible a woman to be easily offended merely by a ridiculous mistake caused by a child. But she would laugh at me. How could she help it? and to be laughed at by Miss Mayton was a something, the mere thought of which tormented me in a manner that made me fairly ashamed of myself. Like every other young man among young men, I had been the butt of many a rough joke, and had borne them without wincing. It seemed cowardly and contemptible that I should be so sensitive under the mere thought of laughter which would probably be heard by no one but Miss Mayton herself. But the laughter of a mere acquaintance is likely to lessen respect for the person laughed at, heavens, the thought was unendurable. At any rate, I must write an early apology. When I was correspondent for the house with which I am now salesman, I reclaimed many an old customer who had wandered off. Certainly I might hope, by a well-written letter, to regain in Miss Mayton's respect whatever position I had lost. I hastily drafted a letter, corrected it carefully, copied it in due form, and forwarded it by the faithful Michael. Then I tried to read— but without the least success. For hours I paced the piazza, and consumed cigars. When at last I retired, it was with many ideas, hopes, fears, and fancies, which had never before been mine. True to my trust, I looked into my nephew's rooms. There lay the boys, in postures more graceful than any which brush or chisel have ever reproduced. Toddy, in particular, wore so lovely an expression that I could not refrain from kissing him but I was none the less careful to make use of my new key, and to lock my other door also. The next day was the Sabbath. Believing fully in the binding force and worldly wisdom of the fourth commandment, 
so far as it refers to rest, I have conscientiously trained myself to sleep two hours later on the morning of the holy day than I ever allowed myself to do on business days. But having inherited, besides a New England conscience, a New England abhorrence of waste, I regularly sit up two hours later on Saturday nights than on any others, and the night preceding this particular Sabbath was no exception to the rule, as the reader may imagine from the foregoing recital. At about 5.30 a.m., however, I became conscious that my nephews were not in accord with me on the Sinaitic law. They were not only awake, but were disputing vigorously, and seemingly very loudly, for I heard their words very distinctly. With sleepy condescension I endeavoured to ignore these noisy irreverence, but I was suddenly moved to a belief in the doctrine of vicarious atonement, for a flying body, with more momentum than weight, struck me upon the not prominent bridge of my nose, and speedily and with unnecessary force accommodated itself to the outline of my eyes. After a moment spent in anguish, and in wondering how the missive came through closed doors and windows, I discovered that my pain had been caused by one of the dolls, which, from its extreme uncleanness, I suspected belonged to Toddy. I also discovered that the door between the rooms was open. "'Who threw that doll?' I shouted sternly. There came no response. "'Do you hear?' I roared. "'What is it, Uncle Harry?' asked Budge, with most exquisitely polite inflection. "'Who threw that doll?' "'Huh?' "'I say, who threw that doll?' "'Why, nobody did it.' "'Toddy, who threw that doll?' "'Budge did,' replied Toddy in muffled tones, suggestive of a brotherly hand laid forcibly over a pair of small lips. "'Budge, what did you do it for?' "'Why, why, I, because, why, you see, because, why, Toddy threw his dolly in my mouth. Some of her hair went in anyhow, and I didn't want his dolly in my mouth, so I sent it back to him, and the foot of the bed didn't stick up enough, so it went from the door to your bed. That's what for. The explanation seemed to bear marks of genuineness, albeit the pain of my eye was not alleviated thereby, while the exertion expended in eliciting the information had so thoroughly awakened me that further sleep was out of the question. Besides, the open door. Had a burglar been in the room? No, my watch and pocket-book were undisturbed. Budge, who opened that door? After some hesitation, as if wondering who really did it, Budge replied, Me. How did you do it? Why, you see, we wanted a drink, and the door was fast, so we got out the window on the parazzo roof and come in your window. Here a slight pause. And twas fun, and then we unlocked the door and come back. Then I should be compelled to lock my window blinds, or theirs, and this in the summer season, too. Oh, if Helen could have but passed the house, as that white-robed procession had filed along the piazza roof. I lay pondering over the vast amount of unused ingenuity that was locked up in millions of children, or employed only to work misery among suspecting adults, when I heard light footfalls at my bedside, and saw a small shape with a grave face approach, and remark, "'I wants to come in your bed.' "'What for, Toddy?' "'To frolic, 
Papa always frolics us on Sunday mornings. Tum Budgie, Ocken Howie's don't frolic us. Budge replied by shrieking with delight, tumbling out of bed, and hurrying to that side of my bed not already occupied by Toddy. Then those two little savages sounded the onslaught and advanced precipitately upon me. Sometimes, during the course of my life, I have had daydreams which I have told to no one. Among these has been one, not now so distinct as it was before my four years of campaigning, of one day meeting in deadly combat the painted Indian of the plains, of listening undismayed to his frightful war whoop, and of exemplifying in my own person the inevitable result of the pale face's superior intelligence. But upon this particular Sunday morning I relinquished this idea informally, but forever. Before the advance of these diminutive warriors I quailed contemptibly, and their battle-cry sent more terror to my soul than that member ever experienced from the well-remembered rebel yell. According to Toddy, I was going to frolic them, but from the first they took the whole business into their own little but effective hands. Toddy pronounced my knees, collectively, a horsey bonny, and bestrode them, laughing gleefully at my efforts to unseat him, and holding himself in position by digging his pudgy fingers into whatever portions of my anatomy he could most easily seize. Bud shouted, "'I want a horsey, too!' and seated himself upon my chest. "'This is the way the horsey goes,' explained he, as he slowly rocked himself backward and forward. I began to realize how my brother-in-law, who had once been a fine gymnast, had become so flat-chested. Just then Budge's face assumed a more spirited expression. His eyes opened wide and lightened up, and shouting, "'This is the way the horsey trots!' He stood upright, threw up his feet, and dropped his forty-three avoirdupois pounds forcibly upon my lungs. He repeated this operation several times before I fully recovered from the shock conveyed by his combined impudence and weight. But pain finally brought my senses back, and with a wild plunge I unseated my demoniac riders, and gained a clear space in the middle of the floor. "'Ah!' screamed Toddy. "'I wants to wide horsey backin'!' "'Boo!' roared Budge. "'I think you're real mean. I don't love you at all!' Regardless alike of Toddy's desires, of Budge's opinion, and the cessation of his regard, I performed a hasty toilette. Notwithstanding my lost rest, I savagely thanked the Lord for Sunday. At church, at least, I could be free from my tormentors. At the breakfast-table both boys invited themselves to accompany me to the sanctuary, but I declined without thanks. To take them might be to assist somewhat in teaching them one of the best of habits, but I strongly doubted whether the severest providence would consider it my duty to endure the probable consequences of such an attempt." Besides, I might meet Miss Mayton. I both hoped and feared I might, and I could not endure the thought of appearing before her with the causes of my pleasant remembrance. Budge protested and Toddy wept, but I remained firm, although I was so willing to gratify their reasonable desires that I took them out for a long ante-service walk. While enjoying this little trip I delighted the children by killing a snake, and spoiling a slender cane at the same time 
my own sole consolation coming from the discovery that the remains of the staff were sufficient to make a cane for Budge. While returning to the house and preparing for church, I entered into a solemn agreement with Budge, who was usually recognized as the head of this fraternal partnership. Budge contracted, for himself and brother, to make no attempts to enter my room, to refrain from fighting, to raise loose dirt only with a shovel, and to convey it to its destination by means other than their own hats and aprons, to pick no flowers, to open no water-faucets, to refer all disagreements to the cook, as arbitrator, and to build no houses of the new books which I had stacked upon the library table. In consideration of the promised faithful observance of these conditions, I agreed that Budge should be allowed to come alone to Sabbath school, which convened directly after morning service, he to start only after Maggie had pronounced him duly cleansed and clothed. As Toddy was daily kept in bed from eleven to one, I felt that I might safely worship without distracting fears, for Budge could not alone, and, in a single hour, become guilty of any particular sin. The church at Hillcrest had many more seats than members, and as but few summer visitors had yet appeared in the town, I was conscious of being industriously stared at by the native members of the congregation. This was of itself discomfort enough, but not all to which I was destined, for the usher conducted me quite near to the altar, and showed me into a pew whose only other occupant was Miss Mayton. Of course the lady did not recognize me. She was too carefully bred to do anything of the sort in church, and I spent ten uncomfortable minutes in mentally abusing the customs of good society. The beginning of the service partially ended my uneasiness, for I had no hymn-book, the pew contained none, so Miss Mayton kindly offered me a share in her own. And yet so faultlessly perfect and stranger-like was her manner, that I wondered whether her action might not have been prompted merely by a sense of Christian duty. Had I been the Khan of Tartary, she could not have been more polite and frigid. The music to the first hymn was an air I had never heard before, so I stumbled miserably through the tenor, although Miss Mayton rendered the soprano without a single false note. The sermon was longer than I was in the habit of listening to, and I was frequently conscious of not listening at all. As for my position and appearance, neither ever seemed so insignificant as they did throughout the entire service. End of Part 4 Read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org on November 9, 2007, in Oceanside, California.